Well, good morning. I hope uh, you, if you were here and you saw the graduates come, the first service, we had even more graduates. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember back in the days when you graduated, but going back there uh, this past week, speaking at uh, a baccalaureate at a local high school, my daughter graduated from college this past weekend. And so this is like graduation season. Uh, even we had Kindle Mother's Day Out graduation this past week. And so there's just been a lot of graduating going on. I can remember whenever I graduated from high school, I didn't even have a passport. I'd never been outside of America uh, or anything like that. But when my first year of college was up, I was able to go to Israel. That was one of the highlights, uh, I guess, of my first year, of my entire college years, was to be able to go to Israel to see some of the places in the world that uh, the, the Bible co- just comes alive. We're actually going to be hopefully leading a team or leading a group over there next year. So if you're interested, you can let me know about that. But that's not a commercial for that. It's just to say that whenever for the first time you come back to the States, once you've traveled out of the country and you come back, there is a something that happens in you. You turn way patriotic. I was so excited to be back on American soil. I was so excited to eat McDonald's cheeseburger. I was so excited. Those were days long gone. But, you know, I was so excited just to sing the Star Spangled Banner and I'd bow down and kiss the ground that I was on back in, in, in America. And just the excitement. Of that. And then I can remember, we were in New York City. We went to a hotel. We were all standing outside. We were in a big tour group. And I was in the back. Everybody else was obviously up in front of me. And all of a sudden, here I am, still proud to be an American. And bang, push, slam, things being broken, people running past me. I didn't know what was going on. It happened so fast. All of a sudden, two purse snatchers from inside the lobby of the hotel ran by, grabbed some ladies' purses, and just kept running. All of a sudden, it's like I went from the highest excited about being back in America to like, oh, no, this is what America looks like and feels like. You know, whenever you've gone through that, I can even remember on that night, I just I went from the euphoric moment, from this exciting moment of being back in America and proud of America to feeling violated. To feeling like, hey, I don't even know these people, but their purse just got robbed and that's not right and that's not good. And, and I felt, I felt violated even though it wasn't, I don't carry a man purse, even though it wasn't my purse. You know, I just felt nasty on the other side. Any of y'all, if you've ever experienced a robbery, you feel that sense of violation. You feel that sense of being naked or stripped or somebody's gone through your stuff. Or If anybody has ever had anything stolen from them, raise your hand, all right? And you know what I'm saying. Most of y'all in this room have experienced some form of theft, some form of robbery. You remember that emotion. Go back to that emotion. Maybe it's the robbing of a relationship. Maybe it's the robbing of something material. Maybe it's the robbing of, of a career. Maybe it's the robbing of any number of things. And you feel that violation. Now, what do you think God feels when we rob Him? That emotion that is in us, that anger, that disgust, that violation that we might feel whenever we have been violated and robbed, how does God feel if we rob Him, robbing God? Think about that, because that's where we're going to look, be, be at today and thinking about today uh, when we think about Malachi. So take your Bibles, we'll be finding Malachi uh, chapter 3. Uh, probably some of y'all who have any knowledge of the book of Malachi knew this day was coming and knew that we'd be talking about this passage of Scripture. And I want us to just hang on to that emotion 
about the idea of robbing God and what God might feel whenever he is robbed. All right, so hang on to that, and let's read a verse here, just a part of verse 8 of chapter 3, and you can follow along as I read. Here we go. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Again, we know the story. This is a nation that's been struggling with this whole idea of making good choices, making good decisions, priorities, relationships with God, love relationship with God, all that kind of stuff. We've been talking about that for weeks. But now we're talking about another oracle, another infraction, another problem. They're robbing God. And so every oracle that's given throughout Malachi is followed by a question, a defining question. How have we robbed you? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because what exactly what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how you rob God. And that's what we're going to talk about today when we talk about Robbing God and how easily for us in all of our accomplishments and God bless America and our prosperity in the land and our freedom in our land, how even in our freedom we might violate and rob and even disgust God with the way we live. But I want to lay some foundation before we get into the heart of the rest of that verse, okay? I want to lay some foundation, and here's the foundation. Let's develop some axioms, some solid truths that you can hang your hat on for the things, the stuff, the money that you have, all right? So this is something to think about. Number one that we need to realize is that all that I have belongs to God. Now, you might look at that and say, no, 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 no. I worked hard for it. I'm the one who shows up on Monday. I'm the one who knocks off on Friday. I'm the one who does the long hours. I'm the one who sweats by my brow. But in reality, in reality, seriously, God owns it all. God owns it all. He just allows us to have it. And there's some verses I want you to read out loud with me. All right? So read them with me. Here it is. Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's not Fort Knox. It's not the federal government's. It's not yours or it's mine. It all belongs, all monetary value, all everything of, of value belongs to God. And if we don't get that in number one foundation axiom in our life, then we're going to fall off the rest of them. All right? But let's keep going because, you, again, you might be pushing back. You might be saying that, no, 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 it's not all his. Here's another verse, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So not only does God own all the stuff and all the stuff that's in the stuff, he owns you who holds the stuff, all right? He owns everything in the world and everyone who dwells in the world. So again, we're just establishing some basic facts. He owns your 401k, your salary, your job, your promotion that you're longing for and you're wanting. All right? Now, here's another one. All of my abilities are from God. I know it. You think that you're just some Mr. that got it made and you did it and you, you're a self-made person and you, you overcame all the odds. And I absolutely believe that some of you all in this room are that kind of person. You're an entrepreneur. You started a business. You're, you're wanting to start a business. You want to start a career. You want to get on a new career path. Listen, everything you have and are able to do is because God has given you the skills to do it. Here it is. Here's the verse for us. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Read it with me. It is he who gives you the power to become rich. He gives you the power. He gives you the ability. He gives you the ways. He puts you in the right networks. He gets you in front of the right interviews. It's not what you know sometimes. It's who you know. But it's also who knows you. And it is God who gives you the power to make wealth. All right? Also, Here's another one, third axiom. 
All that I have is a gift from God. All right? Just get it down plain and straight. That everything I have, it's because God has allowed me to have it. Let's read the verse out loud together. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing, every perfect gift, everything that I have, everything I own, is really, it's a gift. And if it's a gift, do I really own it? Did I earn it? Or did God allow me to have it? Think about it. Just put that down, and we're going to keep building on it. So here's another thing. In case you're thinking that, okay, he's going to come in and he's going to zap us with that I've got to give it all up. Listen, everything that God allows you to have, everything that God puts in your possession, everything, it's there for your enjoyment. It's there for your enjoyment. And this is based on the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Read it with me. God richly gives us everything to enjoy. Now, you don't hear a lot of messages about that. But that's an axiom, that's a truth, that's a principle, that's a precept that we can stake our, our, our lives on. That God allows us to have what we have so that we may enjoy it. Now, it doesn't mean, this is not your hedonism verse that you tattoo on your body, okay? This is not, hey, I can do what I want to do because I want to enjoy it. No, no. We might need to reshape some of the things that we enjoy. We might need to learn a new Baskin's Robbins flavor of enjoyment that we might need to dabble into. Because we are not just supposed to be hedonists with the things that we are given or entrusted. That may be a better way to look at it because everything we have is a gift from God. All of our gifts, our talents, our connections, our networks, everything that we have belongs to God. So really, we're just managing it. That really... How can I ultimately enjoy everything that God has given me? I want to venture into the idea that one of the ways that you could enjoy more is by enjoying it less or less of it. And then finding that it's not the stuff that's going to bring you the enjoyment, but also finding that there is great and tremendous untapped joy in this word, listen, generosity. You will find an element, a depth, a density of joy that you will not find in generosity, that you will not find in hedonistic self-absorption of just taking care of self. You'll find something, a density of depth of, uh, of joy that is in generosity that is in nowhere else. So the scripture encourages us to be givers and to be generous in our giving, but not because I've told you to do it, not because you've been beaten into it, not because you've been forced into it, but because you have chosen in your heart out of the joy of giving to do just that. Here's another verse. I'm giving you tons of verses today. You jot them all down. Go back and do your own reading on them. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven. Each one, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, generous giving, comes from your heart. Your heart is going to be the connection to everything about this message. It's not what is written on the check. It's not even who receives the check. The key in this is your heart. Now, I know a lot of people will wash over that. Oh, it's all about the heart. So I'm just going to give as little as I can because that's what my heart wants to give. And we're going to talk about that and unpack that in just a moment. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I want to give you three criteria 
of generosity or three criteria of giving. You can jot them down and keep track of them. One from this verse is, is we should give freely, not grudgingly, not because we've been told to. We should. Now, I'm going to talk about parenting and, and parenting and learning how to train up a next generation of generous givers here, here in a little bit. So we'll just leave it. This is the ideal. This is what we should aim for. Is that we're not giving grudgingly, but we're giving freely. The second one is that we should give joyfully. He says cheerfully. Now the Bible says he, God loves a cheerful giver. And I've heard it said like this, that he'll take it from a grouch, but he loves a cheerful giver. So I don't know if you're a grouch giver or you're a cheerful giver, but I would hope that in your heart you would find, again, joy, dense, impactful, life-transforming joy in generosity, in learning to be generous with what God has given you. Now, here's the reality about this whole joyful stuff. Some people say, well, I don't enjoy giving. I really enjoy buying for myself. I get that. Here's what you're going to have to switch around. It's not that I just, when I feel like it, then I'll give it. Listen, here's the reality is that if you don't fill yourself in, you don't fill yourself into an action. You act yourself into a feeling. You will never feel like being generous. But once you're generous, you'll find joy. You'll find contentment. You'll find God's provision. You'll find even God replenishing. And then you're going to go, man, what took me so long? What have I been missing out on? Look at all the other years. Listen, you don't, you don't, again, say it with me. I want you to read that out loud with me. You don't fill yourself into an action. You act yourself into a feeling. And when we do that with one of the most tender parts of our life, our money, and we do it in all the areas of our life. You don't go to the gym because you enjoy a good sweat and getting beat up, all right, do you? I mean, you might, but I mean, that's, you're kind of sadistic in that. But I mean, think about it. You don't eat healthy because you love rabbit food and you hate pizza. You eat healthy because you know rabbit food is going to be better than pizza in the end. And you'll feel better and you'll live longer and on and on and on. We can go through all, all of that. You, you feel, you, you, you act yourself into a better feeling. The same it comes in the area of generosity. There's another word, proportionately. So cheerfully, we should give. Joyously, we should give or freely we should give Passion, uh, proportionately. God deserves, listen, this is just the starting point. God deserves 10% at least of everything that we make. Mike, where'd you come up with that? And some of y'all know this. Some of y'all have heard this. You've heard the word tithe. Some people, I heard a kid call it one time tithe. Call it tithe, call it tithe, whatever you want to call it. But this is what he goes on to say. It says in verse 8, well, man uh, will, man rob God. Yet you're robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? So you hear this conversation going back and forth. In your tithes and contributions. We're not even going to talk about contributions today, okay? That's that over and above. That's that after the tithe. We're just going to talk about one of them. That tithe, that first 10%. And we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit as we go. But listen, let me say this to you. The tithe, our generosity is really, and I can't say this any more passionately than this, the tithe is not God's business plan for raising money. 
Remember, He owns it all anyway. He can take it from you. He can put it from your stingy, greedy hand to somebody else's generous, flowing heart any given moment of any given day. All right? He could do it in a heartbeat. It's not God's business plan for raising money. Here it is. It's God's discipleship plan for raising worshipers. I want to say it to you again. It's not God, tithing is not God's business plan for raising money. It's God's discipleship plan for raising worshipers. It really comes down to worship. It really comes down to what we love. Here's the mistake you don't want to make, all right? Mistake number five, we've been talking about robbing God of worship through failing to give God at least a tithe. Robbing God, taking back from God. Now, where do, where do I get this whole di- idea of why should I tithe? Here's the reason. Because tithing is worship to God. You're putting God in a priority p- place in your life. You're doing it off the top. You're doing it from the gross. You're doing it from the, from the cream of the crop of what God gives you. And you're saying, God, from the cream of the crop, I'm giving the first part to you. I'm saying inside, you are first in my life and you're going to get the first of my life. All right? Worships God, but listen, it also does this. It blesses others. And now you start becoming a blessing through a tithe. Now let's break this down as we keep going, going along here. Because God really, at the end of the day, and I said this earlier, and I'll say it again and again and again, it comes down to your heart. You ought to fl- it ought to flow out of your heart, that generosity. And he really looks at it. In fact, I can tell you this. If I really want to know, if I could really measure across everyone in this room, if I could really measure where you're at spiritually, I would not ask you the question, did you have your Bible study this morning? I would not ask, are you a part of a community group? I wouldn't even ask how many hours or minutes did you log in prayer this week? All that could be good. When was the last time you memorized a memory verse? That's all wonderful. All those are spiritual disciplines. But if I really, 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 really want to get the heart of it, I would say, let's look at your heart as it relates to your stuff, to your money, to your giving, to your generosity, to where you spend it. And this is not my barometer. This is God's barometer. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, read it out loud with me. And where your treasure is. I want to know where your heart is. I want to know where your loyalty is. I want to know where your love is. I want to know where your worship is. I want to know where your devotion is. I want to know where your priority is. I want to know where your heart is. Look at where your treasure is. That's the measure. In fact, this is one of the few verses in Scripture that you can literally reverse. uh, reverse. Where your heart is, your treasure is. Where your treasure is, your heart is. Understanding and looking inside of us. And here's the reality. Some of y'all are right now really uncomfortable. And some of you right now think, oh, my God, I brought my friend today. (laughs) We're talking about tithing. Listen, last week we talked about giving your kids as missionaries. It gets easier, I promise. The whole idea is that all of our life is a living sacrifice to God. Every corpuscle, every, every vein, every, every, every ounce, every, everything you can measure in your life is an act of worship to God. And money is just one of those. Treasures are just one of those. 401Ks are just one of those. That's just one of the ways that we measure our love and devotion for God. So how is your worship with God? Ron Blue, a longtime financial planner, 
He's been doing this for years, written books, counseled lots and lots of people based in Atlanta, said this. He says, you can't fake stewardship. Stewardship is that management of God's resources since they're all his anyway. Your checkbook reveals all that you really believe about stewardship. A life story could be written from your checkbook. It reflects your goals, your priorities, your convictions, your relationships, and even the use of your time. A person who has been a Christian for even a short while can fake prayer, Bible study, evangelism, going to church, and so on, but he can't fake what his checkbook reveals. I challenge you. I double-dog dare you challenge you to go home, take out one quarter, three months of bank statements, and just start asking yourself the question, what is the priority of my life? It's not always measured to the dollar. It's not always measured like that. But you will begin to see patterns and trends that really give evidence to whether or not you really see Christ as priority. Lori and I have a desire and a commitment that the largest check that we write every month, listen to this, will be written to Grace Point Church. They will not write one larger to, to a bank. We'll not write one larger for a mortgage. We'll not write one larger for a car. We'll not write one larger for a vacation. For any, The largest check that we write will make a statement that God is primary first and where we go and worship is number one in our life. Think about it for your own self. If God points out here that we've been robbing Him or that some are robbing Him, How do we unpack that? How do we look at this crime scene, if you will? There are several angles of this crime scene. Let's jot them down, if you will, if you have notes uh, of what this crime scene may look like. And again, if there's a crime that's committed, forensics is looked at, eyewitnesses are looked at, the circumstantial evidences are, are looked at, testimonies are taken, eyewitness accounts, all that kind of stuff comes together to make it up. Let's look at three angles of what it means to rob God and how God responds to that. Number one, there's the crime committed. I want to go back and read verse 8. I've read it several times or alluded to it, but the idea is that how does a man rob God? You rob God by keeping and not giving your tithes and your offerings. And the reality is is that most of the Christians across our land, or most of those, I'll say this, who claim to be Christians across our land, do not tithe. In fact, only about 4% tithe. That's a really sad number. When you look at people's banks accounts and you looked at their social lives, when you looked at their discretionary income and you find that, that 96% of those who claim the name of Christ don't tithe, what does that tell me? Again, your checkbook, your spending, your habits say more about your worship than your words do. How does this happen in the life of a Christian? Let me give you two reasons. One is desensitized. We've rationalized it. We've figured it out. We, 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 we don't see the problem. We don't see the issue. We don't see it as, 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 as something that we need to do. We don't see it. We've become desensitized. It's like a person in your family, and you've, we probably have all experienced this, that has an addiction problem. Addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs. Any kind of addiction, you think about it, and you talk to them about it, you have this intervention with them, and what do they say? No, 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 I don't have a problem with this. And you know, and they know, and their boss knows, and everyone else knows, but they're desensitized. 
They've shut it off. They've rationalized. They've self-justified. And that's exactly what we do in the Christian faith as well. Oh, I don't need to do that. They don't need it. I need it worse than they need it. My kids need it. And we can go on and on. And it's really, it's, again, what is, what, what is tithe? The tithe, why do we tithe? We tithe because we want to worship God and because we want to bless others. That's really why we do what we do. Also, then it leads to disobedient. We basically, as Christians, become disobedient to, to a principle. That's the crime that's, that's committed. You say, whoa, 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 Mike, that's Old Testament stuff. We're New Testament. Let's break that down. 430 years before Moses wrote the law in Leviticus about tithing, 430 years, there was a man named Abraham, the father of the nations, that was practicing a tithe in Genesis chapter 14. You read it for yourself. And it was Moses in, 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 Genesis, or in Leviticus chapter 27 who began to put it into law and institutionalize the tithe that everyone thereafter would give a tithe to God. And it was in the New Testament in, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when Jesus legitimized and, yes, gave credence to the tithe, even in the New Testament. That giving of that first, that the first of everything that we have belonging to God. When we lived in Zambia, impoverished Zambia, we're working with new believers. Guess what we're teaching them? We're teaching them to tithe. Not because they feel like it. Because again, what happens? The action precedes the feeling, not the feeling preceding the action. So the action of tithing. So I would talk to them. Get this. If anybody has an excuse to say, I can't tithe, it's the person who makes a buck fifty a day. If anybody has an excuse, it's a person who lives in a mud hut and has a, has a long chute dug out hole in the ground for his toilet and shower. And yet that person, I would talk to them about tithing. In their little congregation underneath a tree or in a little building made out of mud, I would talk to them about a tithe. And I'd say, listen, if you, if you have a garden and you have tomatoes in your garden, take, take ten tomatoes and then carve off one of those tomatoes and make that your tithe. I even had one person one Sunday bring that one tomato to church and give it in the offering. They're getting it. It's happened more times than I can count. I'd be in, in, in somebody's courtyard and we'd be talking about the Christian faith and, and how it works and tithing and all that kind of stuff. And somebody would go and they had kids running through the courtyard and chickens running through the courtyard. And I'm so glad they went and picked up a chicken and not a kid. And, and they'd bring the chicken and they'd give it to us. And that the chicken is like, what do you do with a village chicken that tastes like shoe leather? And, uh, you know, thank you so much for the, for this offering, for this gift. And I'm with other church leaders and I would hand it off to them. And I'd say, what do we do with it? And again, I'm trying to teach the principles here. Because what is, what is, what, what, why do we tithe? We tithe because it brings worship to God and because it's a blessing to others. So what we do is we take that little chicken and we drive on down the road, the rickety road, a few villages further. And we would find another village and we'd find somebody hungry in that village and we'd bring them a chicken. It's simple, guys. God did the math for us. You have 10 tomatoes. One of those goes to God. Off the top, the best of the best goes to God. He did the math for us. That's the crime. Let's talk about the curse. Because what happens whenever the crime is committed, all of a sudden, again, what we say in the very beginning, the axioms of God, I mean, everything we have is a gift from God. All of our talents is a gift from God. And all everything that we have is God's. And, and all this kind of stuff. And He just allows us to have it. 
allows us to manage it. It's this beautiful synergy between us and God. But sometimes, sometimes we take the blessings of God and they become curses. That's exactly what happens when you look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. From top to bottom, from kings to peasants, from priests to commoners. Every single one of them was robbing God. What does this look like? If you go over to chapter 2, verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not listen, if you will not take to heart and give honor to my name, again, worship, giving, tithing is about his name. It's about him. It's not about his plan to raise money, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your What's the word? Say it. Blessing. All of a sudden, the blessing that God has allowed us to have becomes a curse. Becomes a ball and chain. I think we all have experienced some sort of this life. He says, listen, I, I, I like what money can buy. I'm the, I'm the impulsive buyer in our home. I like what money can buy, as Zig Ziglar said. But I love the things that money can't buy. Money will buy you a house, but not a home. Money will buy you a bed, but not a good night's sleep. Money will buy you a companion, but not a friend. Money will buy you a good time, but not peace of mind. What happens is we take money, we take that possession, and we elevate it much higher than it should be. And it becomes what was intended to be a blessing, becomes a curse grabs a hold of us. And here's just a life principle for you. Money is a wonderful, wonderful servant, but it's a horrible master. What happens whenever, again, as we're talking here about when the blessing becomes a curse, what happens in our life is when we've lost worship through our money, worship through our giving, we've lost the ability to bless because we're so mortgaged out, because we have no margin, because we got so much going on. We can't enjoy giving. We can't enjoy that. And we become, we become slaves to the blessing. And the blessing becomes a curse. And that's not how God intended it to be. How many times can we point to the things of our life once we, I how many times I've said this, sounds like a broken record. First we own it, then it owns us. You go out and you buy a new something and then you got to pay for it. I mean, what do they say about boats? The two best days of owning a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. You know, I'm not getting boats. I'm in summer and all that kind of stuff. But I, listen, I don't want to own a boat. I just want you to own a boat and invite me to go on the boat with you. You don't need to own a boat. You just need a friend with a boat. I mean, the reality is, is that we just get so much and we get so much and then all of a sudden we have to work. We can't go on a global adventure. We can't give generously. We can't bring foster children into our home because we can't afford it. And all of a sudden the blessing becomes a curse. When we went to Africa, when we moved there, the, the, the board that sent us gave us 600 cubic feet of space in containers, three containers that we could pack anything we wanted for the rest of our life. We thought we were going for the rest of our life. 
600 cubic feet. You, I, I know, I have no concept of what that is. That is smaller than a, well, you, you might think about this, in a, in a small walk-in closet in your home. That might be one of the containers that we had. Small walk-in closet. And we could pack anything we wanted in there. Anything. They said, listen, you can take it. They don't need air in Africa, so don't pack any air. So we would put anything and everything. We bought Christmas gifts for the kids. We bought, uh, we bought furniture and, and we took over furniture and we, we put everything in there. But they also warned us. When you go, don't take any original photos. Don't take any heirlooms because there's all kinds of things can happen. You might have to evacuate the country real quickly and leave everything behind. Everything gets looted. We had some missionary friends that their containers arrived in Angola, landed on the port, and when it got on the port, the custom officers took off the, the, the door to the container, got inside, took out what they wanted, then the villagers came and pillaged it, and then they called them and said, hey, your stuff's here. What's left of it? So they told us this. You can take anything you want, but take it in your hand and not in your heart. And the line between our hand and our heart is very thin. It's very, very, very thin. And the reality is, is that so much of what we have becomes a part of our hearts. And what I say in the very beginning of this message, it comes back to our hearts. Our heart grabs a hold of it and it won't let go. We have all manner of excuses to why we can't give it when reality It's because we don't own it anymore. It now owns us. The third and final challenge is extended. This challenge is extended. I want to read to you from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Absolutely the most quoted verse in all of Malachi. And he puts it out there. Very big, plain, and straight. It says this, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Underscore that last phrase, no more need. Hang on to that last phrase because he gives us a plan. In fact, I want us to look at several key words to break this down. If you want to look at foundations for giving, full tithe, storehouse, put me to the test, open the windows of heaven. And where does it land? So that you won't have any more needs. So that I can do this. So how does he do this? He, we do it by this. One, one, we learn to give proportionately. Bring me the full tithe. Again, this is something that Abraham was already doing. This is something that, that, that uh, Moses put in writing in Leviticus 27, verse 30. He says, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the, seed, of the seed, of the land, or of the fruit, of the tree. So all those people who like to make exception clauses, he pretty much nailed it all. From the ground up, everything in there that you earn or make, 10% of that goes to God. 10% of that goes to him. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Don't save it till the end and give him what's left over after all the bills are paid. Give it to him from the top. After taxes, are no, give it to him from the top. Second is give to your church. 
Now, let me just say this before you think for a skinny minute that I'm here again about raising money. It's not that at all. This is not about raising money. This is about raising disciples. It's about raising worshipers. But he said in there, bring it into the storehouse. The storehouse was a house. It was literally a building inside the temple courts. That's where they would put grain. That's where they would put produce. That's where they would put the things that the temple Leaders, the Levites would then decide who needs it, who is hungry, who has a need. Let's bless them. What did I tell you? Why do we tithe? To bring worship to God and blessing to others. Worship to God and blessing to others. And listen, I'll tell you this. If you're not a member of Grace Point Church, we're not asking you. I'm telling you, do not tithe to this church. You need to find your church become a part of that church, and you need to tithe to that church. And if it's not Grace Point, don't give it here. Give it to where God is leading you to be a part of. I had a friend of ours tell us when we were first starting Grace Point Church, very first, I mean, we had like five families. This guy's name was John, and he had been praying about it. His wife had been praying about joining us, but they didn't feel like God was leading them. He said, hey, listen, I feel sorry for you. It's basically what he was saying. He didn't say it like that. He said, listen, I tell you what, I go over here to this church, but I will give you my tithe. I said, no, no. It was really hard for me to turn down somebody's tithe when we're starting a church and all the cost that goes into starting a church. But listen, I believe this principle. Your tithe follows you and you give it to your church wherever you belong. Because why? Because giving worships God and blesses others. On, on, on June 7th, I think about two weeks from now, we're going to have the most important meeting of our year. It's our annual strategy meeting. We talk about where the money is going in the coming year. We talk about what our focus will be in the coming year. You don't want to miss that if you're a member of Grace Point. That day is a critical day. You need to sign up online. You need to be a part of that. This is the day where we talk about how the storehouse giving is going to be going throughout. Number three, give trusting. It's where you got to believe. You got to believe what he said when he said, put me to the test. Now, let me explain this whole testing thing. Because there's three Hebrew words for testing. One is nasa. It's used for like testing uh, uh, a chariot or testing a car. We would use it today for like that. The second one is sarap. It's used 29 times in the Old Testament. Refining process. We even talked about that a few weeks ago. Refining gold. That's what that word would refer to. But the word used here is not either one of those. It's the word bahan. And it's the word to talk about reliability. Now, 19 of the, of the 29 times that Bahan is used in the scriptures, it's used about man checking the reliability of man. Listen, listen, this is beautiful. The only time Bahan is used of man testing God is right here. Where we are called to test the reliability of what God said he will do in our life. This is where we trust. And what does he say? This is how we give the third way, is by giving, anticipating. So here's what I want to challenge you. In your seat pocket there, there's, a, there's an offering envelope. This is what I want to challenge you. You can take it home. You don't have to do it here where other people can see you. But this is a challenge. Take one of those offering envelopes home. You can do it now if you want to. And I want you to figure out what a 
what a tithe is in your income. And then I want you to write that in that top ministry blank. Now, it may not be what you're giving, but it would be what the tithe would be from your home and your annual income and what it would be. You write that in there, and then you stick that in your Bible, and then you ask yourself the question, am I ready, am I willing to test God in this so that he can do this? Giving, anticipating, opening up the windows of heaven that I will pour out for you. God wants to pour into your life. Again, everything you want, no, but everything you need. What is it that you need? How is it that God can bless you in your life and move you forward and upward in your life? Let me just tell you this. Personal story, and I'm I'm finished. Because this is something that It's really easy for me to talk about. It may be hard for you to listen, but it's easy for me to talk about. Because since I was about seven or eight, my mother, who raised three boys on a hairdresser's salary, uh, I think, I don't know if she's in here this service, but she was maybe in the first service. Um, She didn't have uh, child support given to her, and she raised three boys and she committed herself to tithing. And in her raising three boys, she wanted us to tithe. I can remember. She was insistent and I was um, resistant. But she was persistent and she won. You're going to take your lawn mowing money. You're going to take your cleaning house money. You're going to take this money and you're going to give 10% to God. And I developed not a feeling. I didn't happen from a feeling. That happened from a habit. That happened from an action. And a commitment and a feeling came. And now you could not talk me out of not tithing. And, I, and I, this morning I woke up and I added this last little section to the message because there's two things that I have learned through 40-something years of tithing. This is what I've learned. Number one is I join God in something bigger than me. It enables me to be a part of something bigger than me. When I tithe to my church, when you tithe to your church, you become a part of something bigger than you. And now it becomes a multiplying effect. I wish I could tell you, but it's confidential. The number of families who walk into our pastoral team's offices and their marriages are literally on the brink. And we sit down. And there's no cost. Listen, you get what you pay for too because it's not very good sometimes. Counsel. And we work with them to save their marriages. This past week, Leodra wrote me an email and she talked about how this year day camp budget may go over. And so my immediate question back, because we have a strict accountability, why? Why is day camp ministry? Because we have so many scholarships that we're giving to under-resourced children in our area that can't afford to come to day camp. I said, no problem. Because we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We'll find the money. I think about our youth ministry right now, and they're talking about sex and dating, and they're talking about how far is too far, and pornography, and how... We, we can do that because everyone's coming together, pulling their money together, and we can have people here ready to serve your families to make them strong. I got an email just yesterday from a church plant that we're helping in St. Louis, the Grove. 
Go up to Webster, Missouri sometime, spend some time, go to a Grove Church, and you'll find that they've started an AA program in the city of Anheuser-Busch that is an AA program for women. And your offerings, your tithes are helping that church do that. That's one week. That's just one week. God wants to use your tithe. Not only he wants to receive them as a bless, as a, as a worship, but to be a blessing to others. One other thing I've learned is that tithing puts me in my right place. Puts me in my right place. When I get that paycheck, you get that paycheck, and we look at it and the, ooh, all the things I want to spend it on. But whenever I say off the top of it, off the first fruit of it, if the first part of it, the priority of it is going to go to God, it takes me and puts me at second. And that's the way it should be. I become second, God becomes first, even when it comes down to the dollars and cents of my life. And see, in reality, God doesn't want 10%. He wants 100% of your life. So what is it going to mean for you? This is not about money. It's not even about raising up dollars and cents. It's about God's plan to raise up disciples who will worship Him. Would you bow your heads with me? As you look at your heart, where is that? Where is the stuff, the things, the money that you're dreaming about, thinking about, consumed about versus where is God in it all? God wants all of you. He wants to be the cornerstone of your life. He wants to be the foundation you build your life on. And for some of you, the things that you own, the things that you possess, your money is really the God of your life. Set Him first, set Him foremost. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for every dime that You've given us. Thank you, for the, thank You for the Africans who were an example to me of tomatoes and chickens and how they would even tithe, yet they made so little. It's not about raising money. It's about raising worshipers. And I would pray that in this room, we would have a room full of worshipers. Raise them up from inside out. Be their cornerstone. Change their life now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing? And would you just do business with you and the Lord right now?